I didn't think I'd ever bring up the trailer park boys in a professional scenario, but we're constantly surprising ourselves here at Salesbricks these days. This week's guest is Guillermo Salazar, CEO of Iris CX, fellow participant in the Stage 2 Summer Accelerator and proud Canadian. Within a minute or two of meeting him, I brought up that mockumentary about the misadventures of a group of Canadian trailer park residents, and we were off to the races. That was my way of building quick rapport with Guillermo. I built a bridge. Stick with us, it's a good one. Wait, so what's SalesBricks again? Okay, think of it like Shopify for B2B software. So revenue infrastructure for startups that lets them sell to just about anyone through self-service, sales-assisted, or sales-led motions. Basically, you can have all that running on day one. Guillermo, welcome to SalesRig Studio South here in Austin, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Brian, thanks for taking the time. Mucho gusto. You want to jump into it? Let's do this thing. Guillermo, what was your superhero origin moment? Here's an example. You looked at the world one way, then something happened, and that moment has led you to where you are today. Let's hear it. You know, it's pretty funny. So I started my career in management consulting, right? Which is kind of the opposite of software. It's basically the whole world is measured in 2000 hours and you kind of arbitrage people's 20s for profit. We did a lot of work. We did a lot of great things and it was very productive for me. And along the way, I ended up working for a big four firm and was leading the innovation, I'll say innovation, not practice. It was like ambition for the Western Canada. And we were doing this conference for all the partners out West. And I was standing in front of everybody. Keep in mind, my background has always been data analytics right? So data analytics are infinitely scalable and it's kind of the only asset class that doesn't deteriorate. It increases in value the more you use it. And so that's kind of my mindset around innovation, scalability. I've been reading a lot about the singularity, reading a lot about abundance thinking, right? Those kind of things. And I was talking to the Western partners around disruption that was happening in the consulting industry. And in this world of everything's Googleable and everyone's giving away information, how can you actually protect your brand? How are we going to be able to balance against this disruption that's happening upon us? Because you've got a lot of people that are really smart out there and they can go find the information that we used to hold with in our portfolios. And so I'm in this presentation and I'm talking to everybody about disruption and about scalability and about infinite outcomes. And I'm looking out in the crowd and you prepare the presentation, you practice a presentation. I wrote the presentation and I'm looking out in the crowd. And for the first time, I actually hear the presentation as I'm giving it in real time in front of, I don't know, 55 people, 65 people. And I finally, it hits me in that moment, what I'm talking about while I'm talking about it. Right. And I'm one of the thought leaders in this space. And I realize I'm looking out in this crowd, this is never going to change for this audience of people because they have a structural change that would need to happen for them to really think about the world in terms of software and SaaS and infinite outcomes, right? Because the world in consulting is always going to be divided by 2000 hours, no matter what. It's finite. It's finite, right? And so you've got to build out your pyramid so that you can actually have your leverage. And at that moment, like it was so weird because I finally looked at myself, looked at the slide and I had this kind of crazy slide in the Persian Gulf War. They had these Black Hawk helicopters, right? And Black Hawk helicopter would refuel in midair, which is kind of crazy when you really think about it because they've got this whirling turbine on top of it, right? But they had to attack Iraq from the ocean. And so they refueled in midair. And so my image behind me was at some point in time, someone had to say, we've got to refuel a helicopter in midair. And someone said, that's absolutely insane. Right. And my point to everybody was that we've got to refuel a helicopter in midair. We've got to think differently about how we're going to solve our problems. And as I was kind of saying that, I look back at this image, I look back on the crowd and I realized they don't get it. Nobody here gets it. And what I'm saying to them is they're fundamentally allergic to, right? Because I'm saying abandon utilization, abandon 2000 hours, abandon all these things. They're all coming at you. And that's when I realized I had to go. 
<laughs> I had to leave consulting. So I'm like mid presentation, having a Jerry Maguire moment. And I'm like, an epiphany. hundred percent. But it's kind of crazy how you can prepare the conversation, research the conversation, have your punchlines, figure out what you're going to say. And then the second it hits you, it hits you. And it's when you hear yourself say it and you believe it. And I realized I had to go and I had to leave consulting. That's a great superhero origin moment. I mean, in the middle of a conversation in front of a crowd, yeah. you're talking about these things that you know very well, you're speaking from your heart and you're looking at a bunch of blank stares and you thought, I'm done here. 100%. Awesome. 100%. It's exactly Thank you what so happened. much for that answer, G. Tell me something from the late 90s or early 2000s that someone working in business intelligence today, data analytics today, wouldn't believe. I mean, all of our data was in different places and different spots. It was different systems. It was all completely split apart. And so just to get fundamental tables to reconcile, we had to run our own programs. We had to run our own things. And so in a BI and analytics perspective, just getting information out of the system was a huge win. Making sense of it was a huge win. Being able to slice and dice, that was a massive, massive pickup. And then being able to really start bringing in together, one of the things that I did really well in my career was I had this ability to kind of understand white space better than most people. And so being able to kind of reconcile the different functions within an organization and how those different functions in an organization need to reconcile. So a great example would be like supply chain and accounts payable, right? Two totally different disciplines. But if I create a purchase order, I'm going to create a commitment that's going to create a payable that's got to reconcile back with finance, Right. Same thing on the sales side of things. You create a sales that creates billing, that creates an invoice, that creates a receivable. How does that all come together? And so bringing together that white space added a ton of clarity into joining information. So what I got really good at in my career was joining information that didn't previously have a natural hook and adding that clarity into things and particularly around data that has a flow to it. Like sales is a flow to it. Mm -hmm. Supply chain is a flow to it. Accounting does not have a flow to it. And so you've got one kind of entity that stops and one entity that's always going. Yeah. How do you reconcile those things? How do you manage those? How do you kind of figure that out? And so, I mean, not terribly sexy, but that whole understanding of how do you actually bring all this information together and make it context? And how do you actually bring groups together with data? Doesn't it seem like we're still doing that today? What you're telling me about is you had all these different systems that were for the most part siloed, right? Oh, well, you're yeah. saying that you needed to get them to talk to each other in a way so you could pull some business value from the information, right? Yeah. The it feels like we're doing that today still. The it's job hasn't gotten any easier. No, it's never going to stop. I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But what we do have now is we have an appreciation for data that never existed before. Data didn't have that strategic imperative that it has today. You can't have a business without data today. But you used to have a business that could run just on process. This gets back into the being infinite in terms of thinking or yeah. abundant in terms of thinking, right? Process improvement is incremental. Can we get 2% better, 4% better, 5% better? Right. That's the daily. Yeah. That's kind of what you want to try and get to. Right. Compounding improvement comes from data, right? So if you want to be 10 percent better over a year, you're 10% better. If you want to get 10% better every month, now you're 10x better, 4x better, 5x better, right? Because you're compounding your learning because you have the availability of data. This is kind of an example just to give you a scope, right? Okay. It used to be that you close the books every quarter. And so you had four data points, right? And then you went to month end and so you had 12. 
And now you're at 220 days. And so just from an exponential perspective, you've gone from four to 220 opportunities to make a decision. That's right. a huge difference. There's a lot of space for you to pull something from all of that information. It's not four data points, it's 220 now. And now it's 2020 or 2 million and 20, you know what I mean? It just goes on and on and on. And now with AI, now you've got a lot of decisions that are being made or recommendations that are being made before you even know you're making the recommendation. That's the beauty of it all is that now that we can have compute both on client side devices or compute in cloud and shared compute, you get a lot more throughput of that data. Yeah, it's a lot more horsepower. That, yeah, we get more decisions, better decisions, and you get more influence of the outcome. It's pretty awesome. Gee, thank you so much for that one. What is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? I really like learning. I just listen to podcasts and learn. I learn all the time. It can be a bit of a distraction sometimes because maybe it comes from a base of insecurity that I don't know what I know and I'm trying to seek or I feel like there's a bit of a blind spot that I've got to cover off. And so I don't tend to overanalyze, but I do tend to over maybe listen and read and so on. And so that's a bit quirky because it's like, hey, did you listen to this? Hey, did you catch that? And so you end up with this garbage pail of things that you've learned over life that is most of it's kind of redundant and rotting, but you pick it up, odd stats and odd data. And it's sure. kind of fun to have that kind of trivia kicking around. But again, I think this gets back to the white space thing is that sometimes you start connecting points of data that are unrelated to most people. And then you start seeing that's why the system's broken. And sometimes that kind of little, hey, I read that. And now that makes it sense It bubbles today. up. It bubbles up when Completely something triggers up. it. Right, right, yeah. right. So that and over-learning, so, that over-listening, that over reading reading that you're doing, it does end up helping up. But yeah. I have a question. Now, my pushback on that one is I used to be, I still love to learn as much as I can, but I definitely cut down some. Why? Here's my question to you. Do you ever feel a paralysis by analysis where it's just too much information and you end up not doing anything? Well, this is the thing is that I've got this personality that gets bored quickly. So I can't just learn in perpetuity because I get bored of learning that yep. particular topic. So it's like reading a business book today, right? A lot of business books I read, I'm like, geez, this could have been done in one chapter. Right? And the rest of it, you're just beating the horse. And so I tend to learn about a topic until I get to 80% of what I didn't know, and then try and seek of that remaining 20%, what do I need to learn so I can actually make a decision? Or if it's maybe 60, 40, or if it's 30, 70, and I just try and figure that part out. I like to think of it this way. I love to learn as much as I can, but I hit a wall. Once I hit yeah. that wall, I have to switch up, which is why I like to read more than one book at a time. So right now I have six of them. So I'll read 10 or 15 pages of each book every day. And that helps me not get to the wall when I'm learning things. So Do the books fiction? can be fiction, nonfiction. I read everything. So I don't read enough fiction. The last fiction book I read was Ready Player One, which I really, really enjoyed. Amazing. Yeah. But the ones that really stick with me, I really enjoy The Sun Also Rises, oh. um, Kite Runner, like those books, because they're just so vivid in their description. I've never been to that part of the world before. So that was kind of like really, really impactful. But like I need to find a better source of fiction books because I'm finding that nonfiction is just a little bit there's a bit of a grind to it and fiction helps kind of trigger a more creative part of my sure. mind so I can do better problem solving. My suggestion to you is I read an Orwell book every year. I guess you would call that fiction. Yeah. I just finished Animal Farm, which is interesting because I just interviewed Mark Cranny, who grew up on a farm in Southern Idaho. So I just finished reading it and I had him on. We were talking about farming, things like that. So I really enjoy Orwell books. Animal Farm is fantastic. And probably my favorite Orwell book, and I read it every single year as a point of perspective, is Down and Out in Paris and London. Highly recommend this book. It is a work of fiction, but as yeah. you know, anything Orwell, it is rooted in truths. So I highly recommend anything that that man writes. This needs a better source of fiction because I'm just not getting good fiction books in my pipe. And I, I think I need to kind of flex that part. Harry Potter time? Our Champagne Jeroboam level sponsor. Packed. 
brings automation and accountability to interactions with anyone in your organization who uses Slack. In just minutes, you can increase on-time completion of sales blocking tasks to 85% with no additional meetings or work. Pact is available for download today for free at withpact.com. So I drive a lot. This is another unusual habit that I love. Okay, I let's love, hear it. I love driving, like long drives. What's long? Like seven or eight hours. Oh my God, dude. No. I love it. That's bad. It's awesome. It is absolutely awesome. And in fact, for the world out there that's EV, I get it. I'm actually pro EV, but I've got a diesel that goes 650 miles in one tank. Oh, how many gallons is in that? It's 100 liters. So it's a 65 liter, 65 gallons. <laughs> Leaders, of course. Right? 65. I mean, my car is like 18. <laughs> yeah. I can drive for like 10 hours straight. And for me, this is like trying to force my brain into, again, thinking about compute, right? So you've got a CPU and you've got RAM and you've got storage, right? And you got foreground processes and background processes in the CPU. And yeah, yeah. You got hyper threading going on. Yeah. And so <laughs> when I'm driving, my front and my foreground processing is dedicated to being safe. Of course. And my background processes are now relieved and they start bubbling the top. And I've been sharing this with some friends that I've got in this business group and we've all kind of really appreciated driving and I don't drive with anything I don't listen to a podcast and I drive in just silence for like eight hours and you know I just what? Like process and think and I love it I love driving I don't love driving seven or eight hours on end that's for maniacs but I do get getting in the car and driving even if it's 30 minutes I don't like playing music in the car anymore I used to grow up the very first thing I had oh, yeah. to do was pick the first song and what the next one was going to be and 100%. then crank it to 11 right because that's what everyone does growing up and what i've changed is i don't even play anything on there and the 20 30 or even if it's 45 minutes however long i'm in the car i'm just alone with my thoughts yeah and not being able to look at my phone that's what the big reason is yeah because then i'll crash and die like texas alberta is very similar to texas in terms of geography i've got long straight roads where there's just the horizon i can go west and drive through mountains in 45 minutes if i drive east i can drive for seven days on just a straight line highway and just the grain fields of the prairie waving in the wind and i can walk the sky <laughs> a lot of and time I can to take think. it all in a lot of time to think i play little tricks with myself i try and see how far i can see i'll spot a silo out in the horizon i'm, like, I think right. 25 I'm gonna keep away. my eyes on that silo the entire way and try yeah. not to crash and but... i just unflex my brain that's an absurd habit because people hate that kind of stuff but i love it i saw this one on your page Build bridges, not moats. Tell us why. This again gets in the data side of things. I think that moats are ultimately indefensible. You are always vulnerable if you're a moat because you're building a defensive position, whereas a bridge is a network position. And so I look at mother nature for guidance on that. You look at the network in a cellular entity or of a forest, right? The network of species that cohabitate and creates a stronger forest. Whereas if you've got a monogenomic culture within a single forest, it's super vulnerable, right? And so if you think of the world in terms of a moat, you're always there and you're hyper vulnerable. You think of the internet. The internet doesn't go down because it's a network. It's, bridges, it's a bridge, right? And it's the multinodal bridge, just like nature. Cellular connections are all multinodal versus single nodal and distributed. So moats to me are throwback to fiefdoms and that kind of Yeah, world. it's a medieval serfs running down the street with a yeah. loaf of bread under their arm. That's what yeah. I think of when I think of moats. Yeah, 100%. And so that's why I think you should be building bridges and not moats and looking at a way to integrate and add value to the collective rather than protecting what you have. Thank you, Guillermo. Gee, you've been in tech for a little while. 
What do the good companies seem to always have in common? They are always adapting. One of my favorite stories, and we kind of leaned on this a little bit, is look at IBM when they brought out their big computers, supercomputers, and they realized that they needed to create a services business in order to actually teach people how to use supercomputers. And now the services business is bigger than the supercomputers, right? That's the persistent adaptation. Look at GE Capital, right? They're always adapting. I think that the second that we try and think that we've got something that's going to roll, that's when we're vulnerable. That's when we're vulnerable. You got to be able to pivot. Yeah. What are some of the unexpected things that you've learned about your customer, your I see what you see customer? What is some of the value that they're getting from their product that you didn't originally anticipate? Very, very timely question because we're about to do a significant pivot. I'll say it's a real awareness of what the potential of our market is, but we are going through a name change right now because we've realized the value that we can provide to our customers is exponential to what we thought it was previously. And we learned that by listening to our customers. I see what you see in just the way the name was described is about how I can deliver service. Where we're going to is we want to move into a world where how the customer consumes service. And the difference in that is that one is service oriented, like delivery oriented, and one is consumption oriented. And the customer experience market is 20, 30 times bigger than the service delivery market. And we've learned that with data, we can create a wholly different customer experience that is rich, empathetic, contextful. And that is how we're kind of pivot. It sounds really dramatic, but it's like an aha. Oh my God, this is right in front of me the whole time. You sort of opened a door. You didn't pivot into a completely different area. It's just with talking to your customers and taking this journey, you realize that that door over there, if we open it, it there's actually another world in there. And it came from one of our customers mentioned us because we were building business cases for them. And they were uh, like, hey, this is the value proposition. Da, 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 da. Right. And they're like, that that's not that important to us. What's really important that you do for us is this. And we're like, oh, that's different. That was the one. That was the moment. Sort of like a little superhero moment for I see what you see. Down totally. the road, we could be saying that. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. That's I pretty thank cool. my customer all the time. I say, thank you for your, because she was pushing back on me on something. And I was like, this is so important. She goes, it's not. This is important. And I was like, yes, it is. And then I stuck back and looked at all of our customer bases. And I was like, oh my God, that's important to everybody. That's it's important, important to everyone. Because ultimately, you don't work for you. You work for your customer, right? Customers, you work for your customer. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. What do you like to do when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused? What gets you back on track? So I started discipline a long time ago because I have a tendency to get off track. I really start the day with 45 minutes of cardio and I got to do it. I'll do it at least five days a week, six days a week. There's some days I want to be unfocused. I've unfocused by design days. I will be intentionally unfocused on certain days just so I can kind of unflex. But on work days, I will do morning fitness and it can't happen after 7 a.m. It's got to happen before 7 a.m. And I, again, I don't run with music or anything like that. I just go. Perfect. And uh, that brings everything back into settled. The context switching is too expensive and I got to have that startup mode. The context switching is too expensive. Have not heard it put that way. And now that I'm thinking about my daily things, if I context switch, I'm out of the zone for 30 minutes plus, if not more, that's costing me money. At least that's how I'm thinking about what you just it's said. Money time. No, it's exactly it. And, and okay. It's, okay. And the reverse of that, you know, working from home has context switching problems to it as well. And I'll give you an example. Like last night, we had a family dinner at my house. And I worked right until six and I was in charge of cooking. So I went like right from finish the conference call to cooking chicken wings. And it was just too much for me. I need 30 minutes to unwind. De to de unwind. Like, yeah. all right, now it's chicken wing mode. Yeah. And so it cost my family, my best me, because I didn't yeah. have time to context switch. 
I mean, and your best you is a pretty good one. I do my best. Question, really, really quick one here. Who is your favorite character on Trailer Park Boys? Oh, you got to go with Ricky. <laughs> All right, Ricky just it is. Ricky or Mr. Leahy. Ricky is the best. Mr. Leahy's good too, but Ricky just a clown. Ricky's unbelievable. Once a month, I like to watch Ricky-isms on YouTube. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what's next for I See What You See and anything that our listeners should hit up. We're a visual customer experience platform. And so what's exciting is we're changing our name. We went through a really thoughtful process to change our name. And what I love about this new name is it covers off five things at once. So it's the same word in seven languages, which was amazing because we've got customers in Latin America and Quebec and obviously North America. It's a personification name. It has a biological connection to our product and it's more <laughs> inclusive. I really believe that we can build a genuinely top-down inclusive brand based on the name and what it can convey. I'm thrilled about it. And that's going to come out September 6th. And that's going to be a full-on reveal of how we're looking at the market. We're really excited for you. Gee, who do you think we should interview next? I got a local Austin guy for you to talk to. Guy's name is Jason Rodriguez. He okay. uh, leads a company called Z Prime. He's doing some incredible, he's a hustler, founder. He's done some incredible stuff of energy and environmental and the grid and bringing thinkers together. Imagine this mashup of empathy, energy, environmental conservation. He's got this whole conference franchise he's been running. Absolutely incredible guy and local Austin guy. I'd really appreciate that. I'll make sure to hit you up for that. You got it. Appreciate Wonderful. that. Guillermo, oh my God, we made it to the final question of our interview. It happens to be everyone's favorite question. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Be ready. Why I say be ready, right? You're a New York guy, right? I am. I'm a Red Sox fan. I will concede that the best shortstop to ever play the position was number two, Derek Jeter. Jeter was always ready. Shortstop's always ready. And, you know, baseball is a great game to kind of carry this conversation because prior to the event, which is when the pitch is thrown, he already knows what he's going to do based on the seven or eight different scenarios that could occur. Bunt down third base, pop fly, line drive. He knows already what he's going to do. He's ready for that event, that scenario. He's also conditioned. He's mentally ready. He's prepared. He's physically ready. All those things are why he's a Hall of Famer. And I don't believe in luck. I believe in being ready. And if you're ready, then things come to you and you can capitalize. Yeah. Too many people in this world are not ready and they're waiting for the opportunities to come to them. If you're ready, then you can activate. If you're ready and that opportunity comes down the road, you can actually take it. You can do it. But you can actually ready, capitalize not, on if it. If you're sleeping in, you're whatever. If you're not ready, it passes by you. And you, you hear that, everyone? Be ready. Wake up at what? 5.30 in the morning. No sleeping in. That's what you're well, saying. Go to bed early. <laughs> Get your shit done. It's awesome. Jay, thank you for coming onto the podcast with me. This was like having a conversation with a friend. Thank That's you so awesome. much. Well, likewise, Brian, this has been a blast. I look forward to seeing you together in person one day. And uh, thank you for doing this podcast. Sharing information is building bridges, not moats. <laughs> We're building bridges, not moats with this one. Thanks so That's much, right. G. Talk All to right. you soon. Cheers. That was that. I really like the story the epiphany had in the middle of presenting in front of a bunch of management consultant dweebs. And when was the last time you heard a Red Sox fan quote Derek Jeter? In earnest. Thanks to the chat, G. And that does it for season three of I'm Not Selling You Anything. It's been a great one. We met some really interesting characters, had some laughs, and I learned a little bit more about how to run a podcast. I want to thank all of our guests, all of our listeners, and John for helping me live out a dream. See you all in October. <laughs>